Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week we celebrate the successes, failures, learning and laughs that go hand in hand with baking for those we love. This week we're reviewing the most famous wedding cake in recent history, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's lemon elderflower cake with buttercream frosting. And we'll introduce a treat Harry is known to request when it's not his wedding day. The globetrotting gourmet heads off to Greece for some sunshine and sweetness. So grab yourself a cup of coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. I recently saw that you've been to a cooking class, hashtag cooking with class. Tell me all about it. It was a little bit different. I signed up for a class called Paleo Desserts. Have you heard of the Paleo Eating Plan? Yes, I have several friends and acquaintances who have had really good luck with Paleo. Yes. Brief thing for people who are not familiar with it. It's sort of like going back to caveman days and eating the way... We did many, many, many years ago. So think about a focus on meats and less of a focus on carbs. Now, this is not how I eat, (laughs) although it might be good for me. But I was intrigued to think, okay, if it's going to be a paleo class, and I know they have that emphasis on no carbs, I thought that might be helpful for me when baking for my friends who are gluten-free. Because I've not had great success using like the gluten-free Flour. So I thought, well, it would just be kind of fun to take a class where I learn about things that don't have flour in them. Right. It was a fun little class. It was just a couple of hours. Interestingly enough, there were 12 people, and I think only one person in the group was following the paleo eating plan. So it was really interesting. I think a lot of us are just kind of interested in different desserts, not necessarily you know, on some sort of strict eating plan. Yeah. So we started out with maple meringues, and this was a two-ingredient dessert. It is egg whites and maple syrup. You just mix those together in your blender. You get this nice meringue. You pipe it onto a cooking sheet, pop it into the oven for a few minutes. Those were so good. They had just this toasty flavor from the maple being in the oven that was really tasty. So I loved that. That was a fun start. Then we moved on to chocolate zucchini muffins, and I think I saw a little bit of this on our Facebook page. We had a listener who was saying they like that chocolate zucchini combination. We made mini muffins, so there was no flour in them. There was almond butter. Just It still made a muffin. It was a little bit denser, of course, than you would think from a regular muffin with flour in it, but otherwise, I don't think you could really tell the difference. Huh. Sounds delicious too. I love I love doing zucchini and chocolate and hiding that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, but it also makes the cake really moist and really delicious. So mm, yeah. It does. I love anything with zucchini because when you get into that <laughs> time of the year where all of a sudden your neighbors are dropping yes. off zucchini on your front porch, it's great to have some some things you can do. We made snickerdoodles. Those actually weren't my favorite. And, you know, as it turns out, snickerdoodles is not one of my favorite cookies in my repertoire anyway. Yeah. So I'm mm-hmm. not sure that, you know, having a paleo version of a snickerdoodle, I'm, I'm probably not the best judge. 
But the final thing we made that was so good, I loved it so much, we made a chocolate mousse. And it had a texture like buttercream. And we used coconut milk, so it was also dairy-free. It was so good. It was coconut milk. It was raw cacao powder. It was a little bit of vanilla. It was eggs. I just cannot rave about this chocolate mousse enough. And especially as we're heading into warmer temperatures, I wanted to make sure I shared that with the listeners. And I'll post a recipe up on our Facebook page and on our website. Mousse is just such a quick and easy and a nice, refreshing thing to have after a meal. Mm. And it seems so elegant. I mean, people hear that word mousse and then they automatically (laughs) have that just very fancy type of feeling about it and eating this and, oh, this is chocolate mousse. And you know what I mean? It's just, it's so lovely. Oh, it does. Sounds good. Yeah, it really sort of elevates. And the particular texture in this one for me was almost like eating icing. And so I was in heaven. It was like eating a cup of frosting. (laughs) Which I've never done. Never, ever. No. No, no, no. no. Never, never. So. So yeah, that was my fun little paleo desserts class. I had a really good time with that. So thanks for asking about that. Yeah, and do you feel that it did give you some gluten-free options? And I mean, it sounds sounds like it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, d- definitely those meringues. I could do that anytime. And the chocolate mousse, you know, that was kind of a template, which, you know, I love my template recipes. Now that I have that, you know, instead of cacao powder, I was thinking I could try some different things. Have you noticed lately a lot of people are buying freeze-dried fruits and then running those through the blender and adding them into their frostings and their cakes and sort of things? So you're getting like a strawberry frosting, but they're, it's because you're using almost – I in my head, I think of it like as a strawberry strawberry powder once you grind down that freeze-dried strawberry. Yes. In Mm -hmm. fact, I think I've seen here in the grocery stores that it's already ground for you. So that maybe is even more of a of a thing here but I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. If you want to make like a strawberry icing that's a good example but you don't want to use artificial flavoring then mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's what people are turning to. And it also makes a very pretty color, I think. So it does. Mm, yeah. yeah. So Andrea, taking a little jaunt further down the road toward a Windsor Castle, we this week baked up our version of an at-home lemon elderflower royal wedding cake. This was a recipe from Heather at sprinklebakes.com. It was a white cake with a elderflower syrup infusing the cake layers and one heck of a lemon buttercream frosting we are hashtag team buttercream on this podcast oh yeah andrea this cake came together well for me it was fairly straightforward it had seven egg whites that's what makes it a white cake as opposed to a yellow cake which would include all of the eggs I'm really curious as to how this turned out for you since I know you were you were having a friend help you who was like kind of an, a, a cake person and because you were a little unsure about about a big wedding cake like this how'd it go <laughs> yeah a little unsure is such a kind understatement <laughs> um, I <laughs> I, well, you know, and I and I brought this upon myself. When we, you and I decided, oh, we have to do something to bake along with the royal wedding, you had um, found some recipes that were kind of single layer or more of a drizzle cake or whatever. And I said, <laughs> no, it's a wedding. It must have layers and it must have frosting. And I spoke from the standpoint of being something that I am that person who goes to weddings for the wedding cake. Mm. I, I mean, I would never in a million years consider leaving before the cake was served. I look forward to the cake. I can't wait to try it. I, I love wedding cake. But I mean, making a multiple layer cake with this frosting, I just 
you know, printing out the recipe. It took like three yes. pages and, you know, just looking at the ingredients and the amount of cake flour and all that. So as I mentioned last week, I called my dear friend Wendy and said, help. And she set aside a whole day for me, which is so kind of her. Aww. I did tell her that I would provide all of the ingredients. And as I was getting everything ready, I thought to myself, well, you know, we're doing this together. It only makes sense for us each to make a cake. So I was doubling all of the ingredients. And so you can just imagine my back seat of my car. I use milk crates a lot to transport things to and from the grocery store instead of, you know, grocery store bags. And I had an entire Uh milk crate full of ingredients. Uh I had two bags of cake flour. I had the huge thing of sugar. I mean, just the butter and the milk and the eggs. And the powdered (laughs) sugar. Yes, I know. I can imagine. Well little asterisk there on the powdered sugar hold that thought yeah okay we'll come back we'll come back to the icing so let's start with the cake I just have to say making cakes is a lot of work I know I sound like a big whiner and for all those people out there who are cake makers and you do this all the time you're probably just doing the hardest eye roll in the world at me but you know first we had to cut out our parchment paper for our cake tins then we had to grease our cake tins then we put our parchment paper in our cake tins then we had to grease the parchment paper then we had to put flour on the parchment paper i was exhausted after step one which was grease and flour two eight inch round cake pans okay exhausted (laughs) oh and in fact we did not have eight inch cake pans oddly enough i don't know what's going on in olympia washington but i could not find any i went to four different stores all i had was nine inch i contacted my friend wendy i said do you have any eight inch she said no all i have is nine inch so we actually made these in nine inch cake pans which turned out fine well parallel lives because that's exactly what i did (laughs) and it worked beautifully so yep no problem there Yeah, not only did it work beautifully, I would say if you are going to bake along with this one, ours were really up to the top, almost overflowing. So I can't imagine how that would have worked out with the 8-inch cake pans. I guess you just would have had some batter left over, but they would have really filled the 8-inch cake pans, I think. I asked uh, Wendy, my friend that was helping me, about this because, you know, I don't bake cakes. And so I just said, you know, boy, this is odd uh, because it is a U.S. baker and it's this 8-inch. And I just figured it was Olympia. And Wendy confirmed it is Olympia. Olympia, that she's been on the hunt for 8-inch cake pans, too, and wasn't able to find them. But she said a lot of cake recipes use 8-inch. So I thought that might just be more of a standard cake thing. Okay, okay. The uh, joy of baking in someone else's kitchen is she had done a lot of prep work for me. So when we get girl. to the next step where, you know, whisking together all the, the flour, sugar, the baking powder, and the salt, and we did sift our flour. A lot of times I cheat, and even when a recipe says sifted, I don't do it, but I thought it was important to do that here. Yes, yes, agreed. She had pre-cut up all the butter for me. So when you get to that step about turn the mixer on low speed and add the cold butter one cube at a time. It was all cut up for me. But I tell you, that was a real challenge for my personality. It's just so slow and it feels so silly. Oh, you mean I just wanted to dump it all in. Yes. Well, and I thought that was an interesting twist as someone who does make cakes quite frequently that usually you cream the butter and sugar together. That's your first step. It's softened butter. You're creaming it together. Here you are, as you say, cubing it up and then you've got your your dry ingredients and you one at a time put in the cubes of butter until you have this mixture that's kind of, I think, does she say cornmeal? She does. Fine, Mm -hmm. fine cornmeal. I have not made a cake like, like this before. The results were fine, but I don't understand the science behind that. If anyone does, I would love to to hear from you on our um, Facebook preheated community. 
but yes, it was one at a time, like a meditative. I was in a trance state by the end of that. So, <laughs> yeah, it struck me as very odd. And had I been on my own, no doubt in my mind, I would have just dumped those suckers in after about dropping in about 10 of them one at a time. Um, we added the milk. We added the lemon extract. I did happen to have some lemon extract in my pantry. I was so happy about that. So I didn't even have to buy that. And the mixture was uh, quite thick. Added in the rest of the milk and the egg whites. And, you know, of course, stopping and scraping down the edges of the bowl. Again, this, cakes are just a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> and also just the only note that I had on this recipe as far as the writing of it was concerned is she calls for lemon zest and then doesn't tell you where to put that in. And so where I put that in was with my milk and lemon extract. That's when I put the lemon zest in. I did as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks yes. for calling that So out. just take a note in that. Scribble that on your recipe, mm-hmm. listeners, if you're baking along. We placed our cake batter into our pans. We put them in the oven. She has a recently remodeled kitchen, which was such a joy to bake in. That was an additional fun part of this whole project for me. So she had double ovens. And what was interesting, I don't have double ovens, but it makes you realize not all ovens bake the same because we put her cake in the top oven, my cake in the bottom oven, and Um, Her cake was done after about 35 minutes. My cake took almost 45 minutes, and it was still kind of jiggling in the middle. Oh, wow. So I did mine, um, UK Bakers, at 180 fan for 30 minutes, and it was perfect. Okay. And we were 350, and hers was 35, mine was 45. So, yeah, it it really did take kind of a while to do it. Now, as we mentioned on the last episode, um, you and I, I think, both planned not to use the liqueur and mix it with the sugar syrup and instead just buy the elderflower cordial. Is that what you ended up doing? I did. I just measured out probably about, uh, it was more than half a cup. It wasn't three quarters of a cup Mm -hmm. of the cordial. You're doing much like your beloved lemon drizzle cake. You have the cake layers then cut in half and you're brushing over the cordial, letting Mm -hmm. that soak down. If I had a taste issue with this cake, it was I would have preferred more of that. So I would next time go a little bit heavier on the cordial. It wasn't at all soggy and I would have preferred more elderflower taste. Yeah, I, I loved the flavor. I'm not sure how much there was because I just poured from the bottle into a bowl. Okay. But I knew that the syrup, you know, was half a cup of water and half a cup of the liqueur. So it would theoretically be a cup um, unless maybe some of the water right. boiled down. So I think I probably did use all that it was called for because I knew I loved that flavor. And I also felt like yes. without that, this is just any other lemon cake or any other white cake. Like I really wanted mm-hmm. that to come through. Mm-hmm. So I, I did use a lot of that. Now you're supposed to allow them to stand for 30 minutes while the syrup infuses the layers. I actually let mine um, soak overnight because as I said with the asterisk on the powdered sugar, here I am thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have all of these ingredients and all this stuff. We get down to the icing section and I realized when I printed out my recipe, I somehow did not print out the ingredients for the buttercream. Oh yeah. yeah. So I did not bring the two cups of butter, and the eight cups of powdered sugar. Now, again, Wendy, being this incredible person, amazingly had all of that, but we only had enough to do one. So um, she went ahead and did her icing there while I was at her house. And then I, when I got back home with my cakes, you know, did my icing after I went to the store because I do not have two cups of butter and eight cups of powdered sugar on hand. Yeah, it makes (laughs) a ton of frosting. And I'll talk about that in a minute, too. You know, I made my cake ahead of time, too. And I think as 
you were saying like what's an easier way to approach cake baking and one thing that I often do and I did with this cake is I made the cake on one day I let it cool completely and I wrapped it tight in saran and then tinfoil and then I put them in a Ziploc bag. I leave them on the counter at room temperature overnight and then I picked up with the step with the cordial and the, the frosting from there. That is one thing because this, as you said, this cake is a lot of work and doing yeah. it all in one day is a full day process. So it's, it's just something to think about in the future. And I mean, you kind of did it naturally because of, of what happened with the, with the frosting. So <laughs> right. see, you're already a pro. Right. Yeah. Yes. I know. I'm already a yes. pro. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I did help Wendy with her frosting because obviously I didn't have my own ingredients. And of course I then messed up. So um, I didn't realize I was reading too quickly or perhaps I'm just not used to it. I didn't realize that we were supposed to have white, half of the frosting white and half of it yellow. Okay. So when I was helping her with hers, I, I I didn't call that out specifically to her. And so we ended up putting all of the yellow food coloring into the buttercream. I mean, it was fine. It's just a color difference. There's no flavor right. difference. But for her cake, all she had was yellow frosting. And then now that I had screwed up her cake, I went home and did mine correctly. <laughs> and that's just, I think, for, for the visual, right? So you have those yeah. layers of the white and the yellow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah, I did that um, crumb coat with the thin layer of frosting over the entire cake. I actually refrigerated that for, um, I think, a couple of hours and then pulled it out and did the full frosting over the top and the sides. And I'm just not a great froster. I wasn't real thrilled with my visual results. But flavor, I thought it was fabulous because, uh, of course, I was eating it as I was frosting that cake. <laughs> You know, and I think you might be tempted if you're trying to save time, listeners, if you're baking along with us, to not do that crumb coat and then put it back in the fridge. I think it really helps. So I really encourage you to not skip that step. Just put it in there for even just half an hour and then go back and do your frosting. It's it's going to make it a big difference there. Yeah, yeah. And I know, I think someone told me she always pops hers in the freezer for 15 minutes. So yeah. if you're, yes, if you're really short on time and you can somehow figure out how to fit a cake in your freezer, then that would be a good way to go. Um, so I decorated with a couple of flowers from my garden. Um, I, you know, hope they were non-toxic. That's something to take a look at. Um, I used some lemon slices. I served this the first night with a, we had some friends over for dinner. So there were four of us and we all had it. And I mean, it was such a hit. I, it was just delicious. The flavor was very different. I didn't tell my friends what it was I said you know oh it's this it's this cake and it sort of you know duplicates the cake um from the royal wedding and both of them were like oh this is so different what is that flavor so definitely the elderflower comes through yes yes it's a show-stopping cake I thought it was beautiful as well with the lemon color and I decorated with just some lemon sliced lemon wheels and I thought that was very pretty Mm -hmm. I also she has a a note about using some blackberry jelly you could coat some um, fruit in that some berries and and Mm -hmm. I loved that that was really good this cake is exceptionally rich this cake is the kind you eat at a wedding in kind of a very thin slice and I think the berries in that in that jam really helped they were a nice visual because they were that dark blue purplish next to the yellow Mm -hmm. that looked really pretty I made this for my daughter's birthday cake and it was a huge beautiful birthday cake the one thing I would say is I don't I don't know how to reconcile this 
I wanted more frosting than the recipe made, but at the same time, it's so rich, I didn't want more while I was eating it. Does this make sense? I wanted more to decorate with because I didn't feel there was enough to cover my whole cakes. Now, maybe that's down to the mm-hmm. fact that I had substituted mm-hmm. a nine-inch uh, cake pan. Yeah, we had a similar experience. So I had to leave Wendy's house before she had finished frosting hers. And just in my head, knowing that we had used two cups of butter and eight cups of powdered sugar, (laughs) I thought to myself, well, I bet I can cut that in half. And she sent me a picture of her cake later, and she sent me a note and said, you need all of the frosting. And I just thought, gosh, that is crazy. But then when I did mine, I found the exact same thing. I'd forgotten about the nine inch. So that could be part of it. I don't know, Stefan, I did not find it overly rich. You know, maybe that just goes to my (laughs) palate. I love white cakes and, you know, it didn't have egg yolks in it. We ate, we didn't eat slivers. We ate, you know, cake sort of um, bakery cake slices kind of thing. So I served those four people on a Wednesday night. I had company again on Friday night. I served another six people with that. And then on the Saturday, we had the final like two to three pieces left. And um, I did finally toss those. I took a bite and I thought they were a little dried out. So that was one of the things that was kind of fun for me, not being a cake baker. I thought, well, here I am complaining about all this work this took, but I did this on a Monday, and I had dessert covered for two nights that week. So that was kind of a fun thing to realize that, you know, baking this kind of cake and doing all this work does mean you can have it uh, over multiple days. And I think, too, that this cake would freeze well. As uh, You've had my chocolate Guinness cake that's very popular. I yes. make a lot. I often make the whole cake and freeze half of it, and it's very similar it has a very rich butter cream frosting and you can't it freezes very well because of that I think something about the fat kind of makes it stay moist in the freezer and through the defrosting process so if you didn't want to eat this whole cake I think this one would also do very well in the freezer wrapped very tightly you know not for years and years but you know for for a couple days for a week maybe something like that it's funny you say wrapped very tightly not for years and years because I came to learn that that's something the royals often do with their wedding cake or the people who attend the wedding they will save their piece in the freezer and in fact some of princess diana's wedding cake was being auctioned off this week in in uh, california did you see that <laughs> i did not but yet more british food history yes, trivia. yes. thank you <laughs> they, i think it was christie's or one of those sotheby's house was going to handle the auction and they were expecting between 800 and 1200 dollars per slice and then it had a big warning saying these were not you know professionally frozen we have no guarantee as to the quality and it was really interesting that it is fruitcake. The traditional royal wedding cake mm-hmm. is fruitcake, yes. especially the top layer, it is. which that's the piece that would be frozen. And of course, you know, you and I love a good fruitcake. And I thought, <laughs> how funny is that? That is a great thing that will last. So if you're actually looking forward to having that slice of anniversary cake, you might actually have a decent slice if you use a fruitcake for your wedding cake. Yeah, so do, so do people who buy cake at auction, what, 35, 40-year-old cake, <laughs> or, or do they go home and eat it? Or what do I they do? Know. All right, well, I don't know. 
Well, this cake, this lemon elderflower cake is much too good for that. You should eat it all within within a short period of time, I recommend. It was delicious. It was beautiful. It was really fun. I think if you just like a lemon cake, this has that nice added twist of the elderflower as well. Maybe there's some variation you can do with either making a little bit more frosting. That's probably what I would do just to have more to play around with. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, otherwise beautiful, well-received, different enough, but also very just just delicious. Really, really nice. Yeah. Yes. Indeed. Indeed. Well, moving on to our next cake in our Royal Treatment Month. And by the way, Stefan, don't think that I didn't notice you slid three cakes <laughs> in on me. <laughs> it's the Royal Treatment, a.k.a. Andrea's Cake Month. Yes, that's right. <laughs> This one, this next one, you're you're gonna love. This is this next one is right up your alley. Yes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope so. I unwittingly agreed to all of this with great excitement, and it wasn't until I was pulling out the third one after I barely recovered uh, from the lemon elderflower and taking a look at it that I thought, my goodness, this is the third cake. Look cake at her. Man. So this is. Prince Harry's favorite banana Mm. caramel cake. The recipe is from Darren McGrady from the Royal Chef at Home cookbook. Now, is this the same Darren McGrady who made that chocolate biscuit cake in uh, episode 75? It is. Okay. And so he was the personal chef to Queen Elizabeth. He would have done also a lot of baking and cooking for, for Prince Harry and, and her whole family. Yes. Well, indeed, he should know then the family's favorite. So looking through this particular recipe, I, I agree. I am going to like it. So I won't complain. I promise. I think our listeners going to like it because we know our, most of our listeners love making things with bananas. And Yay. this recipe actually reminded me a little bit. Um, do you remember back on episode 41 where we made a banana blueberry cake. I absolutely do. I've made that cake several times. That was a huge hit with our listeners as well. That was from the kitchen, I believe. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. We had a cream cheese frosting. Kind of a similar thing here in that it's baked in a 9 by 13. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of my thought looking at this. Um, A fairly standard cake. I don't think there's any ingredients that you're going to have trouble finding. You've got your butter, your brown sugar, your eggs, of course, your mashed bananas. And I I usually find those are easier if they're a little bit on the ripe side. Um, Self-rising flour and baking soda, sour cream, milk, vanilla. Those are going to be your cake ingredients. And then your frosting is going to be more butter and sugar and sour cream, powdered sugar, and a little bit of vanilla. And that's the only thing here, Andrea, that gives me a little pause is I have not had great luck with caramel over the last couple times we've done that. And this is kind of a, a cooked frosting here. So I'm hoping, yeah. I'm hoping that that's going to go great for me and the flavors are going to be dynamite. I cannot wait. Yeah, yeah. I am a little bit um, nervous looking at the instructions that when you make the frosting, I'm, I'm nervous for a different reason. I've had good luck with caramel lately, so I'm not worried about the caramel. But, you know, it says melt the butter and sugar in a pan, stir without boiling for two minutes, and then add the sour cream and bring to a boil. So I'm just like, I'm boiling dairy ingredients? I don't know. I, it just feels weird to me. Although if I was making caramel, I would be boiling heavy cream. But something about boiling sour cream feels odd to me. I agree. That's that's not something you see every day. Yeah. But you're right. It's just a thick dairy. Let's think of it that way. It's just yeah. a thick dairy. So stay tuned. We hope to have <laughs> some um, good results. And if not good results, at least interesting results in episode 77 when we review this cake. And uh, we're really looking forward to making it. That's right. And so that was from Darren McGrady, and we will have the link on our Facebook and Pinterest. And the lemon elderflower, again, was from Heather at sprinklebakes.com. We'll link to all of that on our website, preheatedpodcast.com. 
It's time for another segment of our ever-popular globetrotting gourmet. And Stefan, you are recently back from Greece. Oh, amazing, I bet. I have been there. I went back, oh gosh, probably maybe 16, 18 years ago. I did spend two weeks there. It was in the midst of a trip to Turkey and Italy. And so I have to be quite honest in that I remember very little about the desserts of Greece because the desserts of Italy so captivated (laughs) me. And we did Italy first. And so after two weeks of Italian desserts, I felt like it was probably time to sort of cut back a little bit anyway. So I can't wait to hear what you turned up. So start us out and tell us, where did you go? Yeah, so it was our first time in Greece. It's about a three-hour plane ride from London. We started in Athens. We saw the Acropolis, which is just such an amazing thing to see in person. You know, mm-hmm. you see all these pictures, you read all these stories, and yep, there it is, just in the center center of town. Yeah. Uh, from there, we, we took a ferry to an island called Idra. It's it's spelled H-Y-D-R-A, but it's it's pronounced mm-hmm. Idra. And there are no cars on the island. If you have to schlep something, you do it yourself or you hire a burro or a donkey to take that for you. Oh. So it was the perfect <laughs> respite because it was so quiet and so peaceful. It's on the Mediterranean, of course, that deep blue water and the white stucco mm. buildings. It's among the most gorgeous places I have ever been. Oh, how lovely. Then from there, we went to a town on the Peloponnesian coast called Naflion. And there we were close enough to see the ancient city of Mycenae, which if you remember your Homer's Iliad, it was the home of King Agamemnon. This city was thought to be a myth for thousands of years until it was actually discovered in the 1800s. And you can go and see it. And it is just incredible. You know, just overall, it was springtime. The flowers were blooming, the wildflowers. They have a lot of orange and lemon trees everywhere. Andrea, that was perfect. It was during citrus month (laughs) they have beehives everywhere because of to pollinate but also to make that delicious greek honey so yeah the hospitality was off the charts it was an incredible trip yeah i do remember the hospitality of the people i thought there were just some of the kindest people i had ever met and always encouraging me to try things and to stay longer and to eat more and to eat more (laughs) yes Yes. and you know sometimes i say no no i i have to go and they would say well you're you're on holiday why like they were just confused why why would you go why would you stop you know exactly Uh, now I know you love baklava you even challenged yourself Mm. to make some baklava way back in episode 10 but I'm curious did you eat any new to you desserts during this trip to Greece I did. And I don't worry, I did eat my my share of baklava. No worries okay. there. But the that's thing, important. It is. Um one of the things that was baklava like, but was probably my favorite thing that I ate is I'm going to be very careful with this pronunciation. Galactoburico. And it is mm. a phyllo pouch, so very much like the crust on a baklava, that very thin pastry. Mm-hmm. But it is filled with a custard made with eggs, sugar, cream, and semolina. So if you think of like a very fine oh. polenta. So it's that custard wrapped in the pastry, and it is covered in a honey, cinnamon, lemon syrup. Oh, my god! Oh, Andrea. <laughs> now, is, is it warm? 
when you're eating it or you know I had it cold the times I had it mm-hmm. I I guess you could eat it warm I think maybe that custard needs to set up okay. yeah so yeah. it's probably more of a cold a cold dessert okay uh, but okay. it is oh, you know if you gosh. can't eat baklava because of like a nut allergy or that's a consideration uh, this is also a little easier no with baklava you have got like a hundred layers of the phyllo and you're buttering right. each one and <laughs> this this seems a little easier so I actually found on the airplane ride back in one of my magazines red magazine I found a recipe so I will post that and I might have an oh, update good. about making that at home in the future so that was definitely one of the favorites oh, I can't wait now you were there during orthodox Easter week were there any desserts that were special to that particular time or season yes there were so lots of people during the Lenten season uh, in the orthodox faith give up um, some kind of food for, for fasting and eggs is, is a popular one to give up but they do make a dessert called helva I don't know if you've had this this is a popular no. uh, Middle Eastern dessert mm-hmm. um, Greek dessert and it is a traditional treat eaten during that time because it's made with egg whites and somehow that's okay um, egg whites sesame seeds and sugar and it's made on these huge trays and then cut into kind of fingers and I'm trying to think of a good way to describe the texture we were talking recently about cooking with tahini. Yes. And that flavor. So it has that very strong, um, it's not overly sweet, but a sesame-ish flavor. Mm. And it is like a soft, maybe like a soft granola bar. Okay. Maybe that's how I'd say it. Yeah. Something like that. And it's funny that you mentioned that when you were there, people were constantly saying, no, come back, eat more, eat more. Every night at dinner, even if we had ordered dessert ourselves, we would be presented with a huge pile of these <laughs> as like a thank you and a no, have some right oh. now. And so we ate a lot of that. <laughs> I know. Were there any other things that surprised you on the food scene while you were there? You know, one funny thing is we have kind of become used to smaller portions as we've been traveling. You know, we've lived here now for a year and we've been traveling around Europe. And so we are used to when we're really hungry, eat, ordering maybe more entrees or more appetizers than we would if we were eating in the in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But the Greeks, in a good way, have huge American-sized portions. So, <laughs> yay! The first couple days we were like, oh my goodness. <laughs> We have so now so you're back food. to thinking maybe we should have split this. No. <laughs> we didn't need four entrees, especially when you have kids. You know, sometimes they don't eat you know, adult-sized portions. Exactly. So, And then the other thing that we really loved, I'd actually had this before I went to Greece, but of course having it there was so special. It's called Mastika. Andrea, do you know it's um it's a liqueur? I think it's probably available in, in the U.S. It's, um, it's like... It's a strong liqueur, kind of like an ouzo, but it's made with pine resin. And it sounds so bizarre as I explain it to you, but it's served ice cold over ice, and it tastes like a pine tree. And I just, it is phenomenal. It is the one of the most unique flavors I've ever had. If if you haven't had it, I, I encourage you to do so. It's such, it's such a unique flavor. And you'll often see it made into ice cream as well. So that's called Mastika. I don't recall having that, and I can't imagine that I would forget if I had tried it. Mm -mm. I definitely tried Uzo and was not a fan. So it might have been I tried the Uzo first, and then I said, oh, my gosh, I'm going to back off on the Greek liqueurs because they're not for me. So maybe I didn't branch out very far after that. And Uzo is... um anise right is that what that flavor Mm -hmm. is yes very strong so well very strong listeners if you if you see it run across it i just encourage you to buy a bottle and stick it in 
in your freezer and we are not huge drinkers and we rarely buy things that like duty free but we yes. brought ourselves back a bottle okay of this. so that's how much we think it's very special just a tiny little little tiny little tot <laughs> that's a sign well thank you for traveling off to Aww. greece for us well probably more than just for us but for sharing your adventures with Aww. us that sounds like a great trip that's my pleasure i enjoyed that one well the timer's buzzed and we've got to get this episode onto the cooling rack Next week, we'll see if we agree with Prince Harry about his favorite dessert, and we'll talk about Meghan Markle's favorite sweet treat. Hint, it's gluten-free. Also, we'll chat about the French art of mise en place and how it can make your time in the kitchen more fun and organized, something we're always down for. Remember, you can find us in our featured recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, and on Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at preheatedpod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and consider ranking and reviewing us on Google, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, performed, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.